Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. This is a history podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Yes. Presidential trivia for this week. Yeah. Is which president has two Grammy Awards? <laughs> Grammys. Grammys. Does that, that the music award? Yes. Okay. Huh. Guesses? No. <laughs> I don't know my presidential <laughs> history, so... <laughs> to take a sounding like an idiot. <laughs> I know, but sometimes I just wonder if you just want to throw one out there. <laughs> you know my boy. What? And there's That doesn't really <laughs> narrow it down at all. Yeah, that one. I was just going to agree with whatever name you said. Well... The answer will be at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. All right. So, in 1893, Charles Darwin's cousin, Sir Francis Galton, revealed his theory he named eugenics. The basis of eugenics was that societies should take Mendel's research on patterns of inheritance and apply those to genetic traits in humans. So and think, Mendel's pattern is the the peas, right? Yeah, so I think everybody, you know, remembers from, like, at least high school biology. It was, like, the green smooth peas, you know. Versus the lumpy. With the yellow wrinkly peas and how many green wrinkly peas do you get out of the two of those right so that's kind of i mean it's the basis of genetics right. kind of as we know it right and it was kind of the first time like people were i mean i don't want to say the first time people realized but it was one of the first scientists to be like hey like things the first can experiments be, the things yeah things can be inherited yeah traits like, yeah traits can be inherited i'm sure people were like oh like a blonde dad and a blonde mom usually make a blonde baby. Right. You but know? not always. Yeah. Got those recessive traits, those little R's. Right. Got big R's and little R's. Eugenics meant was to encourage people that are healthy and have above average intelligence plus other positive traits to get together and have more children. If mm. healthy, smart people have more children, then society will have more Healthy, healthy smart, smart people yeah. is kind of what the basis of eugenics is. Sounds a little, uh, <laughs> oh, well, I'll just, okay. <laughs> Galton gathered biological information from prominent families in England using obituaries and other resources to create a pedigree that included information like intelligence and other abilities. Using these pedigrees, Galton concluded that desirable traits were inherited with about a 20% efficiency rate. Hmm. Eugenics began to become popular in the United States in the early 1900s when a biologist named Charles Davenport used Mendelian genetics to produce the optimal offspring in animals. Davenport then turned his attention to using Mendel's principles on human traits. In 1903, several scientists, reformers, and other professionals created the American Breeders Association. Sounds a little, uh, Hitler-y. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and the association included a eugenics committee that was run by Charles Davenport. Members included Alexander Graham Bell, mm -hmm. the guy that invented the phone, and Stanford President David Starr Jordan. 
The American Breeders Association was formed to investigate and report on hereditary in the human race and emphasize the value of superior blood and the menace to society of inferior blood. So yeah, a little little Hillary. Yeah, a little uh it's like a mogul blood or uh you know, Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, like that too. <laughs> yeah. In 1910, Davenport founded the Eugenics Record Office, or ERO, at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in Long Island, New York. ERO's goal was to improve the natural, physical, mental, and temperamental qualities of the human family. However, instead of concentrating on having humans with optimal traits make babies, like we're saying before, the ERO focused on keeping individuals they deemed unfit from having children. Oh. Yeah. So instead of encouraging so like healthy a, people to have children, they're just saying unhealthy people, like in their eyes, they just should had like not a have kids. Pretty much, yeah. The ERO believed that they could eradicate mental retardation, psychiatric illness, and physical di- disabilities from the population if they kept people already living with those conditions from procreating. That's a bold assertion, Cotton. Yeah. <laughs> See how this one plays out for them. <laughs> The ERO began to create their own pedigrees in America over the next 29 years by conducting interviews and prison and hospital records. The people creating these pedigrees looked to see if the people had signs of epilepsy, bipolar disorder, alcoholism, criminality, which basically just meant anywhere from like you know, committing murder all the way to that could mean just um, a woman could just mean a woman getting knocked up outside of marriage was also a criminality trait and feeble mindedness, which was a catch all term that they used to label someone with any degree of mental retardation or learning disability. They never took into account what the environmental factors the people were living with, such as poor housing or low levels of education. Right. Like, those weren't taken into account. It was just like, you're either born dumb or not. Hookworm. Or hookworm. (laughs) Yeah. Like that episode a couple... Couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago. Also, because several of these unattractive traits were... That would just, like, automatically blacklist the entire South. Yeah. At that time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Also because several of these unattractive traits were so vague and subjective, like the criminality and feeble-mindedness mm-hmm. one, the re- and researchers could just use their own prejudices and basically declare almost any single person unfit. Yeah. When the results of these pedigrees came out, they showed that prisons and psychiatric hospitals often housed people related to each other, which made it seem like these undesirable traits were hereditary. This was also around the time that many American cities were feeling overwhelmed by crime, poverty, and the arrival of a large amount of immigrants. So now aren't we into the... We're starting to near the Great Depression, aren't we? Um, yeah, we're about that time. So, 20s, getting... Yeah, we're like 1920s, yeah. yeah. Many politicians and medical professionals began to get behind the eugenics movement and wanted to get it into public policy. The ERO proposed that laws be made that would allow for the sterilization of socially inadequate individuals. They argued that by preventing the birth of more socially inadequate individuals, society could be saved thousands of dollars in the future. 28 states adopted eugenic sterilization laws. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot of states. 
Idaho had a eugenics eugenic law. sterilization law. Wow. What were like the requirements? I mean, was it literally it, it pretty of, much a doctor could deem you as a it kind of unfit? De- it kind of depended on your state, but it could be just that a doctor said, yeah, you're unfit to have children. Mm, sorry. Yeah, we're going to sterilize you. And often they did not get these people's permission. It wasn't like they got their permission. Yeah. They huh. just did it. Yeah. By 19- we kind of have struggled with like human rights pretty much the, yeah, since the lot. inception of a lot. our country. By 1963, there were 64,000 known cases of eugenic sterilization in, in the United States. Like recorded. So the doctors like, well, doctors were just like, yeah, yeah, we did it. Right. But like, who's to it's say? public like, policy. Right. And, but who's to say what went unrecorded as well? Right. And it is thought that there were around 80,000 more sterilizations conducted between the late 60s and 70s. So this is an old this right. was happening fairly recently. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. I mean, like, my grandmother, she was alive in the 20s. Yeah. My parents were born in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. 70s. Any of those people could have been sterilized. Yeah. But Any a, of our grandparents. Right. But a large number of those people that were sterilized were, of course, African-American, Hispanic, and Native women. Hmm. There are some reports that suggest that over 25% of Native women that were childbearing age were sterilized in the 70s. Wow. That's a lot. Wow. Yeah. They would call them Indian appendectomies. And so, like, these Native women would go and have, like, appendicitis or, you know, something else that they needed to be cut open for. Yeah, medical treatment. Medical treatment. And the doctors would just go ahead and sterilize them. While they were like doing the surgery as well. Jeez. Just think about like the long term effects of that too. You know. Yeah. Like one in four, like twenty five percent of your population is. That's just... a lot, and you can't have kids. Yeah. It's like has... you said, they they were doing the child. They were doing. They were hitting the prime target. Right. Of childbearing. Yeah. That is like just a complete detriment to. Any ethnic group or society. Society? Yeah. And it's ethnic cleansing. Yeah. And it's... Sick. Not okay. Yeah. California conducted the most eugenic sterilizations than any other state by performing 20,000 of the 64,000 sterilizations that occurred in the first half of the 20th century. California was all about it. They loved it. They loved it. Hmm. I wonder why... Did they say Why? Um, Just a lot of doctors there. I don't. I don't know why. I don't know if there's a lot of immigrants in California. Mm. Yeah, but a study of the impact of California sterilization laws were used by Nazi Germany to form their own sterilization laws, and Hitler cited the book "Sterilization for Human Betterment: A Summary Results of Six Thousand Operations in California, nineteen o nine to nineteen twenty nine, to further his own eugenic agenda." Wow. Like, Hitler and the Nazis were literally taking notes from America on how to form their own eugenics program. Which, sterilization which, program. Which, essentially, what are you looking for? Like, a supreme being. Right. Not necessarily a supreme race with the eugenics concept. Well, and they said, like, basically, Americans, where we have a lot of systemic racism and we have a lot of racism in our history, but we are always, especially after the Civil War, a lot of times we were very careful about leaving out words like, you know, we sterilize people of color. Like, it was always just, like, known. 
but they like left that wording out where that was the difference where Hitler when he took his he basically took America's laws for sterilization and basically was like so we're doing this. Le- so- they were less politically correct. Right. They're, they're, they were more out in the front. There was like, we're doing this so like white people of Nordic descent can be, you know, the ones having children. Yeah. In order to prove that they were fit enough to reproduce, Americans would submit their families into fitter families and better babies contests that were usually held at state fairs. During the Better Babies contest, babies that were white could be entered and judged on their health, history, physical, and mental development. Fitter families competitions judged families on the size of the family, overall attractiveness, and health of the family, and were originally sponsored by the Red Cross. Really? Yeah. Wow. In 1848, Dr. Samuel Gridley received $2,500 from the Massachusetts State Legislature. Makes you wonder what they're really doing with all that blood. (laughs) Sorry. That was a little delayed, but... Had to get that one in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in 1848, Dr. Samuel Gridley received $2,500 from the Massachusetts State Legislature to create the Experimental School for Teaching and Training Idiotic Children in Boston, which is quite the name for a school. It reminds me of Zoolander, where no. he creates a school for kids who can't read kids good. who can't read good. But yeah, that was the name of it. Dr. Gridley believed that children that had been labeled idiots could be taught to lead productive adult lives. The school's name was changed to the Massachusetts School for the Feeble-Minded. Still not great, but we're, we're getting, we're getting better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in 1883 and in 1887, the school was moved to the suburb of Waltham so that the students could learn farming and shop skills. Basically, the school's mission was to get these children to a place where they could live independent lives and hold down jobs and live on their own Mm -hmm. the school's third superintendent was walter e fernald who was an advocate for eugenics and changed the school's mission from trying to get these children to a place of independent living to believing that these children would need to be cared for permanently so that they couldn't be a burden to society by committing crimes and having more feeble-minded children his thought was like oh once they're here, they should stay here for the rest of their lives so they don't become a burden on society. Yeah. We don't want them to become independent. Yeah. Because then the independence means they're going to find a mate. Right. <laughs> God. The school was renamed again to the Fernald State School in 1925, a year after Walter Fernald's death. When Alfred Binet created the IQ test in 1904, many schools used the test to gauge the intelligence of their students. Many of the children that tested in the 50 to 70 range would be sent to Fernald or one of the over 100 schools across the country just like it. Hmm. However, not all of the students at Fernald were mentally challenged. Some were sent there from shelters or because their parents had abandoned them. It is estimated that about 50% of the children that resided at Fernald would have been able to function well in society without the school's intervention. Hmm. They were just kind of leftovers that they just kind of. Put them there. So they just basically, and excuse me, my excuse my ignorance on the IQ test. I mean, it's based upon your formal education as well, not just like your ability to learn. Right. No, a lot of it is actually people, you know, question the IQ test all the time. Yeah. Because sometimes it's just like things that you would have had to learn in school, not necessarily your ability to learn or like your yeah, actual your mental capabilities. Yeah. And it's pretty, and it's, I think we're starting to realize, like, 
we're going from like maybe not our public education system, but maybe society as a whole, necessarily, you know, maybe more abroad and in different communities where it's a whole, it's a holistic approach to everything. I mean, there's, it's, our societies are so complex. Well, and we're starting to see, you know, a lot more that not all people think the same and not all, pe- not all people learn the same. And that's okay. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're dumb. You're just different. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. So in 1949, eight-year-old Fred Boyce's foster mother died. His biological mother had abandoned him when he was eight months old, and he had lived in seven, seven different foster homes in that eight-year span. He had never been able to attend school because he was always moving from family to family. Boyce was given an IQ test, after which he was labeled a moron. <laughs> Even though he actually had tested within the normal range, which was pretty impressive for not having any formal, formal education. education. Nevertheless, because he was labeled a moron, just because they were going to probably put that label on him, no Anyways. matter how well he tested, Boyce was sent to Fernald and later said, They didn't have to look for homes for you, so they could just dump you off in these human warehouses and just let you rot, you know? That's what they did. They let us rot. When Boyce arrived, 36 children were stuffed into each Which is just even more of a burden on society. Like, by creating this program, you're literally creating more of a burden on society. Because now, like, taxpayers are paying for these people to live their whole lives in this institution. In this system. Mm Mm-hmm. In this system, probably pretty similar to, like, a criminal justice system. Right. (laughs) Boyce never actually started school. Instead, he was just given a Dick and Jane book that he read over and over again. Because they're not trying to teach them. They're not trying to actually educate them. Their plan is to keep them there forever. So they don't need to actually learn. they don't want them to breed. Right. Instead, the school had the children do manual labor to keep the school running. The children raised vegetables in the garden, sewed soles onto shoes, made brooms that they would use to sweep the floor. Some students were even made to cut up the brains of severely mentally disabled people that had died at this school so that scientists could study it. Wow. Yeah, they literally had children just carving up brains. That's disgusting. Yeah, really sad. Can't be great for your psyche. No. Especially when you think you're like, this person, like, lived here with me. Yeah. This like, could be me. Yeah. The staff, this is what they're going to do to my body when I'm dead. Yeah. The staff of the school were extremely brutal to the children. They would take away their meals and abuse them both physically and sexually. They would have days called Red Cherry Day, where the kids would sit in a circle and be called up alphabetically to be spanked with a branch until their butt turned red like a cherry. Many children ran away, but they were always caught and sent to Ward 22, which was the detention center. The runaway was then stripped naked and thrown into a solitary confinement prison cell with a mattress on the floor. Just a bare mattress, and that was it. In 1949, 90 students at Fernald's were asked to join the new science club. The students were told that they would be given special privileges if they joined. A letter was sent out to the students' parents asking for their permission to enroll their children into the science club. If the children did not have any parents, the children were asked to fill out their permission slips themselves. Because they're basically just, yeah, on their own. They had no guardian. They had no guardian. Many could not read or write, 
but they signed as best as they could after believing they were told the gist of what the science club entailed. Boyce joined along with 74 other students. Boyce hoped that the scientists running the science club would see the abuse him and the other children were enduring and put an end to it. The children that took part in the science club were treated specially. They were given a Christmas party, taken to Red Sox games, given Mickey Mouse watches, and got extra special desserts. The boys were also fed large amounts of Quaker Oats cereal. In the 40s, Quaker Oats was competing with cream of wheat for the hot breakfast cereal market, along with competing against the sugary dry cereal companies. Hmm. When you say hot, when you say hot. I mean like oatmeal. No, no, no. I know, but say that. What is it? Hot, hot morning. Hot breakfast cereal. Yeah, that just doesn't sound appetizing. <laughs> I mean, I like oatmeal, but. Yeah. What was the other one? Cream of wheat? Cream of wheat. Yeah. I'm not yeah. a big fan of cream of wheat. Yeah, oatmeal. I think they still got it. Yeah. <laughs> so cereals were at this time under heavy scrutiny for their nutritional value. A study had just come out that showed that oats contain high levels of phytate, which is an acid that inhibits the absorption of iron and calcium in the body. So when MIT expressed interest in studying how the human body absorbs essential minerals and vitamins, Quaker Oats was more than happy to foot the bill, especially if the results gave them an advantage over cream of wheat. MIT's plan was to recruit children from Fernald and feed them Quaker Oats that were covered in radioactive tracers. The Fernald students were ideal test subjects since it was easy to get them to participate. Every aspect of their lives made them easy to control, and they had no idea, basically, of what was going on. After having the children eat the radioactive oats, the scientists gathered stool and blood samples that they would use to look for radiation levels. The results show that the iron absorption rate of Quaker Oats was the same as cream of wheat. Hmm. MIT wasn't done, though, and then they had the children eat Quaker Oats with milk that had radioactive tracers in it. So the milk was filled with radioactive tracers. So they could determine if the phytate chemicals in the oats interfered with calcium uptake. Again, the study found that oatmeal allowed for a sufficient level of calcium uptake when combined with milk. In the third study, MIT wanted to look at what happened to calcium once it entered the bloodstream. Children were injected with syringes that were filled with radioactive calcium. The study found that the calcium went straight to the bones. This study became an important cornerstone for later studies in osteoporosis. Hmm. After that study... Thanks, children. Yeah. I mean, like, seriously, though, like, it's terrible that uh, that's how, you know, that's how the study was... We made leaps in science was filling children with radioactive tracers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. After that study, MIT left Fernald and the science club shut down. Hmm. They just didn't tell the kids anything. They're like, all right, science club is over. Yeah. MIT never bothered to follow up with the children, but they made sure that Quaker Oats was well aware of the results, and Quaker Oats started using high in iron claims in their advertising. Hmm. Red Boyce was released from Fernald in 1960 when he was 19 and joined a carnival since they didn't need to see a high school diploma to hire him. He was basically, you say that you're from Fernald, everybody just thinks you're dumb. Dumb. Yeah. In 1993, a journalist at the Boston Globe named Scott Allen found a whole bunch of papers that documented the MIT study at Fernald. Allen published an article he titled, 
radiation used on retarded on December 26, 1993, and started a national conversation on the ethics of medical research. It also pushed the federal government into launching an, an investigation into the MIT study. Senate committee hearings were held on human subjects and radiation research. When asked about the amount of radioactive exposure the children were exposed to, the vice president of research at MIT said that it was minute and varied on the subject's body weight. He went on to say that for the iron experiment, exposures ranged from 170 millirems to 330 millirems, with an average of 230. For the calcium experiments, it was much less, like 12, like 12 millirems or less. And just for... Like, yeah, what does that mean? So you know, um, the thing I found was that's just how much radiation exposure you had, and 300 millirems, which is about what they were getting for the first experiment, is equivalent to about 30 consecutive chest x-rays. Hmm. So, wow. I don't think that's minute. <laughs> nah, that's, uh, yeah. And also, yeah. That's a lot. It's, it's a lot. If you're giving 30 chest, and think to about children. to like an 8-year-old. To children. 30, ch- 30 consecutive chest x-rays to an 8-year-old. I'd be worried about their health. Yeah. N- there's, yeah, there's no way there was not long-term negative effects. But, you know, they're thinking these people aren't really people. They're unfit. They're not going to have jobs. They're a burden on society. They're not going to have jobs or be in society anyway, so who really cares what happens to them? They've sacrificed their bodies for the betterment of society. Right. The next concern addressed in the hearings was how the study was performed without informed consent. Mm -hmm. The letter that MIT sent to the parents or had the children sign themselves was determined to be deceptive at best. MIT defended themselves by saying that at the time of the study, the concept of informed consent did not exist and that the first federal policy protecting human subjects wasn't created until four years later in 1953. After the Senate hearings, legal advertisements were placed in newspapers asking for people that had belonged to the Fernald Science Club to come forward. Fred Boyce heard about the Senate hearings on the radio and was furious that he was just now learning about what had happened to him almost 50 years ago. Yeah. In 1997, Fred Boyce got 30 other Fernald Science Club members to join him in filing a class action lawsuit for $60 million on the grounds that their civil rights had been violated. The Massachusetts Task Force investigated the case and came to the conclusion that the letter in which consent from family members was requested failed to provide information that was reasonably necessary for an informed decision to be made. Basically, and the lawsuit was just about the informed consent. It wasn't even just a, it wasn't even about filling children up with radiation. It's just it came down to the informed consent. Right. And they're like, hey, you can't, you could not have gotten informed consent from children, especially these children. Right. Or any children. Really, really any children. Or even the parents. They didn't even give them enough information. No, they didn't. They basically, they weren't even saying that they were going to put radiation in their children. The letter basically said they were going to join a science club. (laughs) MIT maintained that the researchers acted within ethical standards of the time, but they agreed to pay out a settlement of $1.85 million along with Quaker Oats, which is nothing. 
Yeah. Nothing. That meant each person got about $60,000 from the settlement. Wow. And MIT said they only settled because they didn't want it to drag, like, out in court. Yeah. They just wanted to be done with it. Wow. But they maintained their innocence the entire time. Boyce said that he never got what he really wanted, which was just an apology from somebody. The Fernald Center discharged its last resident on November 13, 2014. The land was bought by the city of Waltham, and it remains vacant today. 2014? 14. Six years ago? Yeah. So this institution existed for how long? For, it was created in 18... My gosh. 1848? 150 some years? 160 some Longer than that. 170 years, maybe, almost. Wow. Yeah. It, like, started off, like, with, like, a better mission. Like, bad name, but, like, a good mission. Yeah. And then it got bad. And then I think it got slightly... Then it got better. About the 70s is when eugenics was falling out, and so they weren't about just sending people there if they could be, you know, integrated into society. Mm -hmm. So then it became more of a place that people that really did need... Full-time care. Full-time care is what it kind of turned into. But there was still problems and that's why they finally shut down in 2014 wow but yeah that place is probably haunted yo for sure yeah there's no it's not yeah i don't want to go there yeah the buildings are still standing yeah so Hmm. yeah there's got it there's got to be some kind of like ghost hunters episode on that place inferno yeah yeah we didn't. We should have. Uh, should have made a special trip over there. No thanks. <laughs> when we were. When we were in Boston. Yeah. Uh, I'm okay with not seeing that place. Yeah. I'm sure it's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Boston's a pretty beautiful place. Yeah, but this place is outside of Boston. <laughs> and also had like abused children and stuff, and that's not no. just a place I want to go. Yeah. My sources for this story were Human Testing, The Eugenics Movement, and IRBs by Karen Norgard. Thicker Than Blood, How Racial Statistics Lie by Tukufu Zuberi. The Dark Secret of the MIT Science Club for Children by Zachary Crockett. A Spoonful of Sugar Helps the Radioactive Oatmeal Go Down by <laughs> Lorraine Bosanal. The Fernald State School and Loss of Childhood Lives Ruined Through Misguided Public Policy, a Neurology Today article, and America's Deep Dark Secret by Bob Simon. Yeah, I think that's one of those things where... Well, I'm just happy that we have informed consent. Nowadays. Nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And more ethics when it comes to research. Right. Well, and I mean, to some extent, you don't you don't know... Until, you know. (laughs) Right. Right? Though, like, I mean, at some point, like, we don't know what the harmful effects of anything is until later. And then hindsight's 2020. Though, at this time, this was the, this was the 50, almost the 50s. And we had it, we had at least a fairly good idea that radiation wasn't great for you yeah but also i'm i'm kind of also talking about yeah 
No, you're right. Okay, I'm sorry. That was a terrible argument. <laughs> Take that back. Also, can we talk about eugenics just in general? Yeah. Like, that was... Really messed up. Yeah. And and I am guaranteed that I'll probably do, like, more of a an actual episode just based on probably sterilization. Because that's at least, you know, 140,000 people were sterilized in America in the 20th century that we know of. That we know And of. they say especially that, like, 84,000 number could be way higher because they were, you know, eugenics was falling out of favor in America. And so who knows how many sterilizations. How many old school doctors. Right, like, especially on the Native women. A yeah. lot of those were unrecorded. How many have actually happened? Because yeah. they said between, it could have been between 25 and 50% of Native women of childbearing age. Wow. Which is just... Unbelievable. Mind-blowingly sad. Yeah. And, and a large percentage. Yeah. So, on a more fun note. Yes. Which president... Won two Grammys. Won two Grammy Awards. Bush. <laughs> it, it's close. It was Clinton. <laughs> Clinton. It, was, it was Bill Clinton. What? Yeah. For what? <laughs> well, you know he plays the saxophone. But it wasn't because of that. That's what I. That's what I figured it was. Is like he did some kind of like saxophone yeah. album. But he actually his first one was for spoken word in the children category, and his second one was for Skin spoken flip. spoken word for his best selling memoir, My Life. And then Hillary Clinton, Hillary Rodham Clinton actually has a Grammy, um, a spoken word Grammy in 1997 for him, for her memoir, It Takes a Village. So between the two of them, they have three Grammys. What is spoken, what is spoken word? They, they read their book. Book on tape. Oh my gosh. Didn't know there was Grammys for, for those, that, that, but there is. Oh uh, my gosh. It's <laughs> awful. Hey, you read your book real well. You you did a really good job at reading your book. We're so, going to give you a Grammy. So pretty much you read a book. This has nothing to do with you being the president of the United States right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or your husband being president of the United States. Yeah, we just like you. Yeah. You're, you're speaking. You're great. Your spoken word. You are so good at talking. Yeah. I was really hoping that it was going to be for a saxophone playing skills. Nah, that's kind of disappointing. Yeah. If you liked this podcast or episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Send us a message. Send us a message if you liked this podcast, if you have stories of future episodes you want to hear about. If you know somebody that went to Fernald or was part of another school, we want to hear your stories. And if you send them to us, we could definitely read some out loud on a future episode. Yeah. I want to hear about it. If you know anybody in your family or family's friends that was sterilized during the eugenics process, yeah. I want to hear about that too. Yeah. So send all that our way. You can do that by going to our website, americathebazaar.com, and filling out the contact form. Mm-hmm. Uh, also on the America the Bazaar website, you can check out some merchandise and some more information on these episodes. With the show notes. With the show notes. If you like. For free. For, for free. For free. You can read the free. show notes for free. Yeah. How great is that? We don't charge people for that. Yeah. 
We want you to stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay stay weird, weird, America. America.